Hello, hello, good afternoon, good evening, good morning. Uh, to those listening across the world, across the country, you are tuning in listening to WWVU FM Morgantown 91.7 FM. This is United to the Moose, the Cinematic Odyssey, with myself, Chris Rodriguez, and my co host, Max Clark. And we have a special guest in here on the studio virtually, as uh, my wonderful girlfriend, Mackenzie Betteridge. She is uh, all the way in California. Uh, Los Angeles specifically, so all all the way in the West Coast. Um, I think it's, yeah, you can say hi. Yeah, hi. hi everybody. It's good to be here. <laughs> yes, I'm excited. Me too. Me too. It's gonna be a good episode. We're gonna be talking about tar. Um, but before we get into that, I just want to mention for those listening on the radio at the point that this is aired, it'll probably get cut off. So like the the Ran episode and the Parasite episode. Um. The last, well, the portion that was cut off, you'll be able to listen listen to that on the streaming platforms that we have it on, uh, which is available on everything pretty much. But uh, yeah, last week, uh, oddly enough, our Royal Tenenbaums episode did get cut off, um, even though we were live in the studio in the main station um, because of an ad break. (laughs) (laughs) So that happened. Um, But you know we're back in here and uh well we're back in the uh downstairs studio um but uh yeah i mean tar i was i was uh hyping this one up last week the only things that got cut off were all the good things that tristan had to say about this film i mean (laughs) i basically kind of (laughs) Let's just say I uh, wouldn't say overhyped it. I I don't know. I don't know about you. I mean, for me, um, when I first heard about it, it was from a... Well, I saw it on Letterboxd. And then Mackenzie and I, we went to go watch Triangle of Sadness Mm -hmm. in October. And then she saw the poster for Tar in the theater that we went to go watch Triangle of Sadness. And I was like, oh, I recognize that. And then she said yeah, I had seen a movie with my friend um, earlier in the week, and I saw the preview for it, and I couldn't remember the name for the movie, and it was driving me crazy for like a week. I was like, it looks so good, and then we went to go see Triangle of Sadness, and I was like, that's the movie. I'm like, okay, we need to see it, and it's lived up to the hype. And yeah. It, it, yeah, we'll, we'll get into that, but. Yeah, most certainly. I mean. The uh, it's directed by Todd Field. This is his third film, I believe. Um, yeah, it's his third film. He, at least before, the only thing I knew him from was when he acted in Stanley Kubrick's last film, Eyes Wide Shut, which um, headlines with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. Tom Cruise being the main character, um, and Todd Field's character being. Tom Cruise's old um, medical school like friend, uh, but he dropped out. And Nick Carraway, which is the character that Todd plays in the film, he is a pianist. And again, I'm not going to go into what exactly happens with him because um, spoilers, but that film is fantastic. But that's all I knew about him from before. Because when I saw his name on, on the letterbox page, I was like, Todd Field, I don't know who that is. And then I saw the picture of him. I was like, oh, it's that guy. (laughs) But, uh, I mean, apparently 
I guess he, but even before that, I guess he had like was kind of mentored by Kubrick in some capacity. And I definitely see that with this film. I mean, I mean not stylistically, maybe direct directorially. I kind of see some of those influences for sure. But um, uh, Todd is a well, coincidentally enough, a maestro in this film. Uh, in his direction, in his screenplay, um, and everything in between, there are so many. This film is extremely dense, extremely dense. I would say it requires probably a second viewing to fully understand its scope and truly appreciate its scope. Um, it's about a conductor, composer by the name of Lydia Tarr. She is the conductor or head conductor. I don't know what they call her. Yeah, head conductor. Maestro. Maestro. Some yeah, some people call her. Um, of the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra, which is I guess is the top of the top creme de la creme of uh, the. Oh yeah. The classical world or whatever. A lot of wonderful opera composers and classical music composers came from that area of. Europe, uh, be it Germany, Austria, um, you know, Belgium around that area, Czech, a lot of people. So, you know, you could list off the names. You could go Mozart. You could go Beethoven. Beethoven, I think, was Austrian. Um, Or no, he was German. But like. So many of these composers, not just um, classical composers, but also, you know, opera, um, Bertolt Brecht, I believe, was German. Um, well, uh, Kurt Weil was German. Um, a person instructing me in uh, voice was lived in Germany for 20 years performing opera there. Mm. That is a great, great city for classical music, okay. which makes total sense that she is selected to be there. Mm-hmm. And they build her up like the the first line that we hear is just the New Yorker reporter listing her accomplishments yeah. listing every single thing that she's done just to put her on this pedestal. Of, yep. She is the top of the top. Mm-hmm. So of course she's in Berlin. Yeah. She is quote, or she's quote in the film as to be one of the most important musical figures of her time. Um, it, <laughs> I was kind of taken aback. I mean, it felt, it seems so real. Her character seems so real to me when I, when we were watching it for the first time. Yeah, I, I genuinely thought, is this a real person? I mean, it's not. She's fictional. Uh, well, but the yeah, it feels so real. They put her in our our world. You know, they they have her as an an EGOT winner, which is uh, an Emmy, a Grammy, a Oscar, and a, a a Tony. So yeah, like you said, they just hype her up to this. You just even her her aura, her character when she walks in the room. You know, you're like, oh, this is somebody important mm. yeah yeah um yeah so like yeah the world the world kind of the world building around her characters uh flawless and it's really just inserting her character into the world that we live in because yeah. uh what's his name adam adam gopnik adam the, gopnik the new yorker interviewer yeah he he mentions the pandemic this is post 2020 society this is supposed to be happening like as we live right now which is really cool it's 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 not that they're creating 
a brand new world. They don't have to introduce us to all the rules like it, this is Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter, but they have to insert this character into the stuff that we already know. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned in the beginning there, the, this film is extremely dense, so I don't even know where to begin to how do we tackle uh, such a, yeah, like a, a, there's so many layers to this. And I was kind of alluding to, I mean, they're, they're not, they're more small, subtle uh, choices um, in terms of like little details that are that are made that I was kind of alluding to uh, with you, Max, uh, when we finished watching it. Yeah. Um, but in terms of what the film is about, because there are, well, for the people that have seen it, for the very few amount of people that have seen this, <laughs> which is sad, but, um, you know, so is the nature of high-end heart, art, art house films um, <laughs> and good, good art in general. Um, it's, it's about Lydia Tarr's Fall from Grace, which is a story that has been told many, many times before. However, the way that it is told in this like modern context that we are all very aware of regards to quote unquote cancel culture and you know the discussion that is extremely relevant now considering what uh, Kanye West his anti-semitic mm-hmm. tour Nazi tour that he's going on right now um, you know separating art from the artist and Lydia Tarr is the basically she's kind of the character that embodies that discussion however in a much more nuanced way or i should say not her cuz her actions are i mean they're pretty bad she does she's not a very good person i mean yeah but in terms of how the film tackles her character and how the film approaches this topic of discussion it's extremely nuanced it's not extre- it's not like black and white it's not very um, kind of surface level in terms of the way that Todd Field uh, tackles uh, such a subject, at least in my eyes. Uh, I think there's a lot of um, not only criticism on her actions, but the structures, the power structures in place that allow people like her to thrive in those uh, environments and allow people around her to also kind of thrive off of her attention and how all those things kind of work together in this like giant machine to, you know, breed selfishness, breed like, yeah. um, very just bad outcomes for people, um, that lead to, you know, as we learn in the film, someone, uh, commits suicide because of Lydia's actions or inaction, but both actions as well. Um, but yeah, so the film begins, as Max mentioned, uh, with her getting an interview by Adam Gopnik of The New Yorker. And they talk about, you know, her accomplishments. And then they t- he asks her about her mentor, um, Leonard Bernstein. Leonard Bernstein. What a what a name drop there, because this this man was the epitome of 20th century composing. Like, I mean, 
you didn't know Stephen Sondheim. You're not going to know Leonard Bernstein. But no. Leonard Leonard <laughs> Leonard Bernstein co-wrote. Um, he did the music for West Side Story, and Stephen Sondheim did the lyrics. But Leonard Bernstein uh, did so much uh, work. Um, it, it really it was impressive. He did uh, a bunch of pieces in which he would uh, address the audience as a conductor. Um, and explain to them uh, certain music, musical terms, things like that. See, he did a lot of um, kind of, I guess, more art musicals. Um, theater works included Candide, which is a, a book, a musical adaptation of the book written by Voltaire, which is just a philosophical, really wonderful philosophical work but he did the music for it okay. so he's think of him as like an uh an art house a classical but composer oh, as opposed to like a mainstream guy yeah oh. he, every you in all likelihood heard his name you know if you've ever listened to the song it's the end of the world as you know it yeah rem he's in that song oh for real leonard bernstein oh i didn't, know that. I didn't know that but <laughs> cool. oh, okay all right. Oh, that's cool. Uh, but actually, what am I saying? Even before all that happens, mm-hmm. the very, the very first part of the film. Yeah, we have to, we have to dive into that. The whole credit, opening, opening credit scene. It's, it's at the beginning. You know, the whole, and they don't start with, um, the directors' names or any of the major, major actors or actresses. They start with. The very end, the the supporting cast and crew. Uh, mm. It's such a bold choice right from the start. And then Tristan and I, we were in the thing, we just kept looking at each other. We we're like, was this intentional? Like, what, what's going on? And then after you know watching the movie, you understand why that choice was made. Yeah. But it it just everything, even straight from the beginning, is intentional in this movie, and it's oh yes, incredible. Yeah, because I've never seen a movie that begun like begins like that with the uh, the credit. Yeah, basically, if you're watching an end credit scene of any movie, just reverse that and put it at the beginning of your film. That's literally what Todd did. And in the background is T- Lydia Tarr in I think Chile or Peru when she's oh, no, no, no. Actually, no, she's not. Wait, yes, yeah, she is. Yes, yeah, she is. Because in the in the interview, Adam list that she goes to somewhere in south america i forget what country mm-hmm. specifically um i want to say ecuador but i'm not 100 percent on that and uh, that's yeah so the audios of her you know listening to a, a woman sing in her native tongue um but yeah that's what's being playing underneath i frankly don't understand what that means or what that's pointing towards but that yeah that's there i think it's i think it's just to make sure it's not a, a completely quiet opening mm-hmm. i guess uh, and it also sounds like it's the same interval that lydia keeps playing on her keyboard as she's trying to compose as she's trying to come up with what she wants to say that's what it sounds like to me um it sounds like she's taken that melody back home with her and is trying to make something new out of it and you know she she's not able to she doesn't have that uh composition gene in her it doesn't seem because she can't seem to figure out where she wants this uh this piece that she's trying to create to go 
but the, I, I think that's the cool thing is that with this film, the sound design is and the score is completely uh, I want to make sure I use the correct word here. It is diegetic. This film uses diegetic sound. Um, and that basically means any and all music that we hear comes from the world of the film and the actors or the, the people involved can hear what is being played. There is no score. There is no, um, you know, soundtrack. There's nothing that is included in this film that is, you know, just for us to hear. There's no montage. There's no underscoring. Anything that we hear is being played in front of everybody. The, uh, the orchestra is playing. Um, uh, every any, any piano that you hear is someone sitting at a piano, picking out a note on camera or in the other room, which I think is incredibly, incredibly cool. Just to have that as part of the design. Yeah, I didn't pick that up. Uh, I, I mean, there's yeah, there is no music when there is no one playing the, any instruments. That's true. Um, but I didn't. I honestly didn't. That didn't click with me. I don't know if that did with you. It's definitely uh, notable. I think you don't notice necessarily that the music's not there because it just feels there's so much tension in the movie. And I think that's part of what creates that tension is, well, as we find out in the film, Lydia is a very on edge, anxious, uptight person. And you, you are in her world when. I feel like there's no sound. It's almost like you're just walking with her through her day, you know, and it, yeah. It makes it all the more realistic, right? Yeah. yeah. It's mm-hmm. not meant to be some grand cinematic adventure, uh, you know, uh, a cinematic odyssey, if you will. <laughs> but <laughs> thank you. I'll be here all week. But <laughs> it's it's meant to suck you into the world of, Lydia Tarr. It's not meant to be seen as fictional. It's not meant to be seen as um, something random or that could happen. More so, this is happening. This is real life. This is real for her, and this could be real tomorrow. And mm-hmm. I think I think that's part of the reason why Podfield decided not to use any extraneous sound. Yeah. And uh, during the interview, uh, Adam asks Lydia about women conductors uh, or female conductors and um, and how, like, they kind of paved the way for her to be allowed to kind of be in the position that she's in. Um, and two scenes later, uh, she's in Juilliard. She's doing, like, a guest class. And... Um, you know, the discussion of identity politics comes up, which is pretty consistent theme, I'd say, probably throughout the entire film. However, in terms of, like, its importance in a specific scene, the Juilliard scene is definitely at its highest peak. But it's interesting, though, that in the immediately next scene, when she's discussing with Elliot Kaplan... Uh, yeah, Elliot Kaplan, I think is his last name, but Elliot, um, yeah, Elliot Kaplan, which is a guy, he's like, she's like a, 
like a business partner or whatever, they set up this um, fund, accordion conductor of like group or something to basically help uh, young women in the classical music world to, you know, allow them to get opportunities in different um, orchestras in the world, essentially. Um, so they set up that fund to help to help women in that regard. And one of those women, uh, Krista Taylor, was a recurring name that we see. We don't necessarily see her face. Her face is always either obscured or we only see the back of her head. Yeah. Um, mm. Which this was something that I caught the third time watching this. <laughs> I didn't catch it the first two times. But during the uh, interview, there's a shot, you know, the wide shot. Of the back of the head of that one girl. Oh yeah. That's Krista. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The first time we watched this funny story, I I'm 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 we come out of the movie and I'm talking about oh my gosh you know these major things and he goes what? Like, <laughs> wait what are you talking about? I, I basically explained the whole movie again. It, in his defense, it takes so many watches of this movie to truly digest it. I feel like in the way that it's it's meant to be, there are so many incredible details that can very very easily be missed if you're kind of watching it uh, a little bit more casually. So. And this being my first time watching it, I know I missed some stuff. I feel like I have a good grasp only because I was spoon fed a lot more information by Tristan in the process. Just be like, oh, by the way, you know, that might not be that may be important. Maybe not. Ooh, what do you think about that? That shot right there. Like we're we're talking about it as we're going. So I'm kind of I've got my analysis hat on while we're chatting about this. Yeah. Um, and as I was mentioning, so she was talking about like female conductors before her, um, and how most of them kind of paved the way, uh, for like her generation, um, and whatnot. But it seems like their their work wasn't didn't amount to a lot because it seems like she's one of the very few, um female conductors at the head of a major orchestra yes and not only that but she is kind of actively working against anybody who's close to her to try and put them down so that she can maintain yeah she can maintain her power yeah and so in the next scene she's just she's having a lunch conversation um with ellie kaplan uh and she briefly mentions about opening up the accordion thing to males as well um and elliot was a bit confused by that because he was like well isn't the whole point of it for you know to help women get into the orchestra world (laughs) and she kind of just dismissed it and uh, then he said oh well the donors won't be happy about that and she was like oh okay then you know kind of alluding to the fact that she doesn't really care she's just more about you know, does this uh, benefit her um, by her looks, monetarily speaking, and stuff like that? Although it's also, again, um, I, I, the next scene after that, 
with when she's get, uh, doing the teaching thing in Juilliard. Yeah. <clears throat> this will probably be the most discussed scene, apart from like the ending, um, the very end, the last shot. Yeah. Um, this will probably be the most discussed scene of the entire film, at least in my opinion. I don't know. Because it's it's just like so it's such in your it's so in your face about everything. Yeah. Um. So yeah, she's she's in she's at a Juilliard class. She's teaching it, and one of the students, uh, funnily enough, is named Max. Um. He. Uh. She asks him if he's he listens to Bach, in a very she she says Bach. Yeah, yeah, that she she is very elitist in her pronunciation of uh, composers. Bah, Beethoven, she's <laughs> Beethoven a lot as well. <laughs> I mean, let, let, let's let, let's keep it in mind. She's at Juilliard, okay? Yeah, that's true. Like, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> fair, fair enough. But if if you want to look at something in that scene, I want to point to the camera work because who is that class about? That class is meant to teach students, right? This is a master class. This is about her imparting her wisdom, her wisdom, some of her knowledge, any of that into the students. And she is not out of frame at all in this scene. The camera follows her even when she's not talking. The, fo- the camera is on her no matter what. We always have some part of her body in the frame at all times, which begs the question is it is it really for the students is this just to kind of ensure her spot as i am elitist i am better than you i am the cream of the crop like stroke her ego exactly right um yeah so she asked him about bach and he said that he doesn't like bach nor does he listen to bach and she's i'm not really into bach yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) uh and then She's obviously surprised and shocked, and she says, "Well, you should check out this book." Um, but wrote that I guess knew him, knew Bach or something, or what, or was trained by somebody that knew Bach. Yeah. Um, and you know, she went to great lengths, kind of showcasing how great Bach was, and basically the reason why he didn't like. Bach was because he was a misogynist in his words I mean I personally don't know much about his like personal life um, but that's what he said uh, that's why he doesn't listen to him and then Lydia goes at the piano she starts playing a piece of his and you know he admits that it sounds beautiful and that you know it, it sounds great but he's just he just can't he physically cannot um listen to that because he well he also mentions that he he doesn't want to he doesn't listen to white cishet males male compo- male composers so all of them or yeah. most of them i should say him yeah. <laughs> chopin out bach out beethoven out mozart out uh yeah. rembrandt probably out uh, I don't even know if he was Tchaiko- a painter. Tchaikovsky. Tchaikovsky out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mahler. Out. Out. Yeah. Um, and then she obviously is like, she says, uh, don't, don't get easily offended. It, 
She says it in such a very kind of condescending way. Oh yeah. <laughs> in like a very sharp way. Um But like the the whole look is it's his own moral compass determining whether or not he'll do what it is. And she's trying to change that, which it is problematic in this sense. If he were trying to convince her that she shouldn't play Bach because of this, I would find that problematic. I would find that excessive. I would find that to be preaching to the choir. But it's the exact opposite. She's trying to break him out of his 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 decision, his personal choice, mm. which is, you know, not OK. I mean, he made his choice. He doesn't want to do Bach because of this reason. Yeah, that's fine. That's that's, that's his decision. Yeah, that's his decision. Um, yeah, she says the narcissism of small differences leads to the most boring, uh, most boring conformity. Uh, yeah, and then she kind of goes on a tangent about basically um, tearing down his his mindset, essentially, in a very, well, very rude way. She goes about it in a very rude way. But uh, she does make an interesting counter-argument to what he is saying, because um, he basically is like, okay, if we were to use your criteria, um, let's say, okay, there was this Icelandic woman who is a composer conductor or whatever and she says oh she's very hot um and like if we were to put that criteria onto max would anyone agree that would be the same person or whatever or something like that and then obviously everybody wouldn't disagree and then max was Max the character. <laughs> yeah max was righteously or rightfully justifiably angry uh by that comment and so he storms out, calls her the B word. <laughs> yeah, with a bonus expletive in there. Yeah. Uh, oh, and then to that, also a great line. To that, she responds, and you're a robot. Yeah, you're a robot. <laughs> great insult. She uses that multiple times yeah. as an insult. Bunch of robots using phones. I can send, I can send texts. I mean, Mackenzie, what's, what is your stance on... Bach, I guess. I mean, like, we, 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 I guess with the with the thought of what do you, I guess what do you think about Max's uh, Max the character's point of view with Bach? Mm-hmm. Well, like you like you guys said, um, I think you put it perfectly. It is his prerogative, his you know decision on what he morally feels he needs to do he needs to listen to or not listen to for that matter um but i also see lydia's point in in showing him the beauty of um purely the music that he's missing you know um and it's 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 tough you know it is an internal war because you're like okay well Certainly, you don't want to condone um, his behavior uh, in his personal life. But, I mean, Bach is Bach, you know? Like, he's created so many incredible works. It's Mm. 
it's hard to ignore. Um, yeah. Working with the idea that all humans are flawed, will we, it just matters on will we call attention to them? Are we going to qualify mm -hmm. everybody based on their flaws? Or are we going to qualify people based on the good that they put in the world? Right. I mean, like, I'm certain that uh, Taylor Swift probably cheated on a test when she was in high school. Well, now, if you're a fan of Taylor Swift, <laughs> uh, this 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 means that you support academic dishonesty. And we can't stand for that. I mean, some of these people are going to grow up to be doctors. It's that it's that kind of. At some point, at, at some point, and there is a point where it's not, but at some point, you do end up grasping for straws, trying to find something that puts a famed individual on a lower level, to uh, humanize them by showing their flaws, showing that, hey, they screw up too. Mm. And they, when, if they screw up, they screw up badly. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, and then... Yeah, it's like, well, also in that same scene, she says that, you know, in her words, she says, I'm a U-Haul lesbian. <laughs> uh, um, and then she says, with Beethoven, I must face Beethoven. Even though I may not like him, I face him, you know, and I, I challenge him, uh, you know, through his music. And every time she does she is like blown away by his work yeah um so i guess it's kind of like that idea i mean it's easy it's easier to like kind of with with guys like that it's kind of easy to just kind of be like well they're old whatever who cares just listen to them yeah you know what i mean um but then we have our contemporary uh and very current issue with Lydia and her problem yeah. and her faults which are very very bad yeah extremely <laughs> bad yeah <laughs> which is which is the question that the film proposes in that scene but now after that scene you see Lydia's basically um trying to well stop that uh issue or her her past problems from uh, coming up and ruining her career Mm -hmm. um the so yeah what i get from lydia is we can we can respect i mean we're we're gonna talk about the fictional character of lydia tar uh which is we can respect what she's done we we can understand that she has accomplished inc incredible feats that she is extraordinarily talented but we also have to recognize that while we understand that she was very talented, she also, you know, tackled a dude and assaulted him and <laughs> beat him up on stage in front of a full audience, uh, you know, grooming. Um, cheating. Cheating. Cheat on her wife. Yep. Um, She's just a very bad person. She is. She doesn't seem to have a moral compass. She seems to only want to get to the top and stay there yeah so um with the cheating things uh specifically just a little side note okay mm -hmm. see that you see that handbag the birkin bag 
in the middle there? The red one? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, remember the you remember the scene after the interview she had? Remember she was talking to that one woman that had the bag? No. The, the woman immediately after the interview finished, she was talking to a woman, I forgot her name, but she was talking to her and then like they were having a conversation. And Francesca, her assistant, was getting mad. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. She was holding that bag. Yes. Um, when they get back, so she has it right now. She, they're going back to the airport. When she gets back to Germany or Berlin where she lives, her wife, Sharon, asks her where she got the bag from. And she says, oh, Elliot gave it to me as a gift, which is a clear lie. <laughs> and Sharon, on top of that, asks... Why didn't you answer my calls last night? I called you. And then you're like, oh, I know what she was doing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that, that completely and went past my head. It It is also implied that this happens often because, yeah, like you said, her assistant, Francesca, she seems not very phased by it. Like very annoyed, like, oh, chop, chop. Don't do this again to me type thing. Like we got a schedule to keep. Come on now. Yeah, we should talk about Francesca. She's a oh yeah, and yeah, yeah. I mean, like her character. So she, yeah, she's the assistant of um, Lydia. Basically, takes care of her like scheduling stuff and emails, whatever. And the the whole this is this is like a theory that I read on Letterboxd about you know her. Krista and Olga, how they're kind of all kind of working together in a way to bring down Lydia. Specifically, Olga and Francesca. I don't are, think Krista would be a part of it. Are working together to kind of bring down Lydia's uh, power or her position, like ruin her career, essentially. So on the airplane, Lydia gets a well, before the airplane, she, um, Francesca mentions to Lydia that she gets she got a book from somebody. Um, there was no card, no sender, whatever. She didn't know the name. She opens the book in the airplane, and the book is Challenge. I forget the name of the author. I believe it's the book that she referenced earlier about Bach and the, written by the friend of Bach. No, 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 no. no, no it's I, that's that's what I thought. Oh no, it's a different book. So I need to watch it a few more times then. Yeah, it's a uh, it's called Challenge. I forget the name of the author, but it's but the the author was having an affair with somebody Ooh. while right. So the co-writer of that book, she was having an affair with that person. Hmm. Yeah, so a little a little tidbit there. A little jab. And then on on the first page of the book, there was these like labyrinth like drawings on there. Um, she gets freaked out. And throws it away um, because she recognizes those drawings from somewhere, probably from Krista, who I assumed was from her at first. I it's actually probably not from Krista. It's probably from Francesca. Yeah, it seems like Francesca is kind of the instigator um, because I feel like truly things start going downhill fast when. Francesca immediately resigns from her position after, um, I guess, the final straw with Lydia, where Lydia kind of insinuates that she may give Francesca um, a spot, um, like a higher. Yeah, the guest conductor. Yeah, 
or like or the assistant conductor something like that yeah yeah something like that yeah continue yeah and but francesca knows everything she has been very very close with uh not only lydia but uh krista as well and has seen everything goes down she has all the emails all the receipts she she's in full full view of everything um mm-hmm. oh yeah and yeah she has she has the power yeah and yeah lydia has i in my opinion it feels like she's been cruising she's cruising at the top she played her cards she politicked her way up she manipulated and schmoozed her way to her the position that she is at now and now it feels like she's kind of cruising she doesn't have she's now she's just enjoying the power mm-hmm. and what with she underestimates francesca she forgets that oh other people have cards to play as well mm-hmm. she doesn't she's not aware of her own vulnerability she's not aware of her flaws and that allows her to fall yeah, her ego gets in her way. Exactly. She, because it's all about her. Yeah, it's all about her. Um, and so, yeah, I also forgot to mention, she also steals her wife's meds. Yeah, she steals her wife's meds. <laughs> so there's that, too. <laughs> and lies yeah. about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so another tidbit about Lydia's terribleness. Um, I've got a quote. Um, there was a, a New York Times article from the, the magazine. I don't know how many of you are wonderful folks read the New York Times, but there was an article, I want to say it was like about a month ago, about um, Kate Blanchett, our wonderful lead. And uh, she has a quote in here, um, fascinated by the idea of Lydia Tarr as a character study and going in deep on who this person is. And her quote is, um, how much is permissible when you're striving for excellence? Um, what can a person in Tar's situation get away with? What should be accepted as the price of her talent? Dishonesty, sexual indiscretion, abuse of subordinates, unpopular opinions. And she also noticed that notices that you know Tar is about to turn 50. She's about to go through that massive old, getting older transition. Oh, I didn't know that. I mean, it's about the age of yeah, they're middle Blanchett, age. middle yeah. age. Yeah, they're middle age. And it's just a way for her to become bigger and she has lost her connection or that connection between her and making music has been broken. Yeah. Uh, we also get introduced to a couple of new characters as well in the film when she gets back to Berlin. So we get introduced to uh, her insurance daughter, um, Petra. Um, and, as you see later in the film, she's kind of like the only person that Lydia actually loves for who she is and like actually wants to con- like cultivates a healthy relationship with. She's the only person that you see her doing that with um, mm. because, again, most of her, if not all of them, all of her relationships with everybody in her life are solely transactional. You do this for me, I will grant you this thing, um, which again is kind of like the grooming part about all this with Krista Taylor and um, her wife. Yeah. Um, and then 
Francesca probably. I assume. I mean, it's not. It's. I guess it, you can imply it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and one of the um, best scenes as well is that it's heartbreaking when she sits down with her wife and um, Sharon confronts her kind of about everything. And yeah, like you said, she she points that out to Tar, and she seems like she's been in realization of this for a while. Um, and couldn't couldn't do much about it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because when um when Olga comes to the stage, which is when my theory comes in, this is when I get my uh, tinfoil hat on. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so Olga, she's a new celloist who is like pretty much trying to get her way onto the the orchestra. Um, she's she's Russian, and uh, the first time Lydia and her kind of well they don't really interact but they see each other was in a bathroom and Lydia notices her shoes and there's like auditions going on for that that specific seat yeah in in the orchestra um, and she recognizes her shoes because in the audition process there's a whole bunch of like there are blinds set up. Yeah. Those listening and selecting who will get the seat do it blind, not based on who they may be predisposed to, they may politically like more, but who sounds the best. Yeah, and I, I just I, I didn't really think about that the first two times I watched it, but the third time I like I thought about it, I'm like, Oh wow, that's so interesting. It's not it's like okay, when when t- choosing that person, that player you are not you are solely focused on the music that they are producing. You don't care about what they look like, who they are, what their behaviors are, what they believe in. Does that doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. Because on the stage, all that matters is that they're playing the music. However, that same treatment doesn't occur to Lydia, which is interesting. But I mean it's I, I would say it's righteous. I wouldn't say it's justified that you know her you know her actions have consequences yeah. as they should people's actions should have consequences and i think the what makes this important i guess what makes you know we we can say it's about uh cancel culture and everyone kind of just wanting to bring her down lydia does this to herself she at no point addresses her flaws she at no point makes any attempt to apologize, admit to what she's done, or you know accept any idea of wrongdoing. No, she instead chooses to uh, gaslight her wife into thinking, no, you're crazy. I'm not doing anything. These are all ridiculously made-up claims circulating on the internet. It's false. It, it's not real. She she comes straight to a meeting with her lawyers and it's like, no, I don't have any proof. This is not real. It's not the truth. I don't uh, – one of the people doing her deposition was like, you always answer, I don't know or I don't remember. Is there anything that we can show you that maybe will you know, jog your memory? <laughs> and she's like, oh, I don't know. And Lydia brings this on herself. She is always – she's digging herself a deeper hole with the hope of coming out the other side. Mm-hmm. And spoiler alert, that's not how holes work. 
<laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I was gonna say something. I lost my train of thought. We gonna go to the ending? No, oh, no, 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 not no, yet. No, not yet. Not um, yet. Oh yeah. So yeah, uh, kind of like uh, building on that that uh, that thought about like being blind. She jokes. She jokes about that pretty regularly in terms because there's there's mentions of other conductors composers who have done terrible things but like they always round it back to oh well you know who was the better musician or whatever <laughs> and like completely ignoring you know what they did um because she she has like a lunch a lunch date with with um one of basically the her her, well, not her successor, who she succeeded mm-hmm. in her position, Eldris. Men- uh, yeah, uh, just his, her, her mentor. Yeah, yeah, one of her mentors. Yeah, um, and like they, they have two conversations or three. I think it's three or two. I forget how many exactly. But uh, yeah, El- Eldris. Like, well, there's two. Di- yeah, there's two distinct conversations they have. The first one, they're very humorous and like lighthearted when it when it terms of like talking about composers or conductors in their personal life and their professional life. And then the second conversation is a lot more serious because at this point in the film, Lydia is feeling the heat. The world is crumbling around her. She is she is losing her grasp, her control on the situation at hand because at this point, um. Krista Taylor, who I mentioned, who she attempted to groom, um, committed suicide. And well, to clarify further what Lydia did to Krista, Krista was under her wing in the accordion group uh, meant to be empowered as a female conductor. Mm. She is promised... Um, a higher position in return for sexual favors. Krista denies yep. and then applies otherwhere, other places for a spot in a different orchestra. And Lydia has sent emails to every orchestra head that she can possibly get a hold of saying this woman is unstable. This woman is not is a detriment to your um, group. You should not let her join and blacklists her from the the classical music scene and they everyone trusts her because it's Lydia Tom yeah, she Tom. is the best of the best yeah completely yeah. ruining her career uh, doesn't even let her career get started <laughs> frankly uh, yeah. so yeah that's kind of the reason why uh, Krista does what she does and um, yeah and so Francesca also has emails that Krista personally sent to Francesca, basically telling her, Tar wants me dead. You know, I can't do this anymore. This is getting too much to handle. I do think it's metaphorical dead, but the point still stands yeah. that her, her career is done. Yeah, her career is done. Mm-hmm. And Francesca has all these emails. And so... There is uh, the guest conductor, whatever, the assistant conductor at the Berlin Orchestra. Um, Lydia wants him out because 
he I guess he's not that good at his job or whatever. I don't I don't know why exactly. She just doesn't he's like him. Yeah. Yeah. She just yeah, she yeah. just basically doesn't like him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what it just comes down to. Um and she wants him out and she is looking for a replacement for him and she tells Francesca to make a list of potential suitors and she says you can add your name to that list. Um and uh you know she tells her uh I'm going to go with somebody else other than you Francesca and then Francesca resigns and leaks all those emails to the press yeah. or to somebody she go- I think she goes to the authorities or she goes to Krista's parents either way they are now a matter of yep. and now Mackenzie here's here's a que- here's a fun question does Francesca win by doing this? Oh, I mean, I think she, I mean, it's, it's sad because truly in this situation, it's just it's a tragic situation. Does anybody win? Does anybody come out on top? Not, not exactly, but she definitely exposes um, Tar for, what she did and and rightfully people that that shouldn't be it and people should know that this was taking place so um i mean in that sense she did win by bringing that to light but yeah she definitely oh also something important to note she was asked to delete the emails by tar because tar knew it was a liability um and she didn't so she she knew she knew the power of those emails she was essentially blackmailing her like hey don't forget don't forget what i have on you yeah and lydia checking her inbox and then asking her about it later is just a test of her loyalty Mm -hmm. um hey by the way did you delete those emails that i asked you about oh he's she's like i don't know i can double check later great non-answer i you know what Mm -hmm. i think well i know for sure what would have happened if she if she said, well, if Lydia gave her the job, she would not have leaked the emails 1,000%. She would have been like, oh, yeah, those are deleted. Uh, that didn't exist. Krista Taylor, who's that? <laughs> you know? No, and, uh, but if she did delete them, then she probably would have gave her the job. Because, because Lydia checks, yeah, like you mentioned, she checks right. her inbox. And she sees that she didn't delete any of them. Then she immediately goes to a boxing gym. Like, that's something like a motif that occurs when she exercises. Yeah. So she she does like she goes to a boxing gym when she's mad. Yeah. And then she runs. When um, she's scared or she's I mean, it usually happens after a nightmare. Mm-hmm. She wakes up in the middle in the bed in the middle of the night. There's been those shots of, you know, uh underwater blurred faces kind of mm-hmm. dragging her under or, you know, She's hearing sounds in the house. The metronome has been turned on and has a drawing in, inexplicably. It has and, a drawing. It has a yeah. drawing of the the uh, labyrinth thing that I mentioned on the book earlier. Yeah, and is just ba- she's now running away just from her yeah. problems. <laughs> How fun! And and also the first running scene, she hears a a lady scream, like yeah. as if she was getting murdered. 
Um, and she tries to look for her, but she can't find her. Mm-hmm. You know, to help her out. And then she just kind of the scene ends, and then it goes on. The movie continues, but um, like she, she, I guess she, I guess it's kind of like a a little pointer to she recognizes that you know women are in a lower position of society in terms of power that they hold in comparison to men. Mm-hmm. But you know the structures of power um that like i mentioned earlier allow people like lydia and allow people like sharon or francesca or everybody else in orchestra to kind of be where they are um it's this constant battle of like okay i'm gonna do this for you uh i'll do this for you you know very transactional kind of relationships um not very not very based on like ethics or whatever just kind of like all right um do this so i can benefit you kind of thing yeah no i i i see it like this you know she's she's made it to the top she had to bite scratch claw her way up to the top and to in order to get that respect as a woman in a male dominated field yeah and now that she's there oh the benefits are pretty sweet i'm really enjoying it up here do i really have to let other women all up here to enjoy this spot or can, can't i just chill here for a while it's like you know if you were to win the lottery tomorrow would your principles remain the same would you be like no money won't change me even if i was a billionaire money would not change me i would donate to charity i wouldn't do anything and then i mean wouldn't the first thing you do be to help yourself out? You know, maybe pay off your loans, maybe uh, invest in a house, maybe pay back some debt for, to your parents or something like that. Like, we, I feel like though we who are not millionaires and billionaires will say, you know, I'll be better with my money when I have it if I'm up there. Mm-hmm. And then we get there and you're like, actually, you know, this is pretty nice. I okay donate 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 to help you know fight disease in africa private jet <laughs> gosh it's it's really a, it's really what a decision private jet wow <laughs> and she's like private jet i want the benefits i don't want to share them with anybody who cares about equity because I fought my way up here, they will do the same. Yeah, it's like continuing that uh, oppressive power structure that, you know, as you see, some women quite actively go against that. Francesca, her actions against Lydia. Mm-hmm. Um, you got Olga also kind of avoiding Lydia's actions and also kind of working in tandem with Francesca. Because I think, you know, that person that Francesca is texting on the phone, uh, you know, there's like three shots of her on the phone. And it's like a video or whatever. Yeah. I think that's Olga. I oh, think she's talking yeah. to Olga. That's an interesting thing. Because, because Olga, she's just, she's there to try out for Berlin because that's where she wants to be. But ultimately, as of safety, she has her spot pretty much reserved in the Russian uh, symphony orchestra or whatever. She's good in terms of her career. She's just in Berlin, so she can like 
advance her career, be at a higher position. Um, and then Francesca, she is kind of like jaded and she doesn't really like Lydia all too much as we kind of clearly see. And she's just kind of looking for Lydia to either benefit her more or as an out or like get her out uh, of the picture. And it's kind of, I feel as though Lydia's, or no, Francesca's also been groomed by Lydia. Oh, yeah. But to the point, but now she's advanced to the point where you're, I don't want to play with you anymore. You're old news. <laughs> I, I'm going to trap. Lydia tosses Francesca to the curb, which I think also plays into her um, decision to actively sabotage Lydia. I mean, yeah. Yeah. But I want to go back to that that phone. Um, what do you guys think is actually happening? I mean, like, is that just a way to say spill the beans inside? Does that work towards your like the grand conspiracy to take down Lydia Tar? Or like, who do you think's on the other end of those messages? Well, I think it's Olga. Well, okay. Olga, is she the one sending the messages? You think? No, or... the one holding the phone in the shots are, is definitely Francesca. Yeah, because we see it in the beginning, in the on the train or plane. We mm. see it. There's one in like the a hotel, hotel room. room. The hotel room. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And then we see it another time, much later, when book signing. Yeah, the book thing. And that would be Olga was there. Yeah, because Olga, that's Olga was there. after. But she was standing up in the back. Yeah. The shot was of a person sitting down. Mm. So it was most likely uh well, yeah, it was Francesca. I mean, you she's the only person we see doing that. So who else would it be? And the, yeah, and they talk about her in such personal language that it mm. has to be someone who knew her. I I buy that. I buy that. Yeah, and like also too with the, you know, the things happening in um Lydia and Sharon's home with, you know, the moments where she wakes up, the metronome thing, and then like Petra's um, Play-Doh being in the shape of the, the drawing. Mm-hmm. Um, I gotta say that it has to be Francesca because who else would have access to their house? Because it's not going to be Krista. She's in New York and she's dead. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's not going to be any of their family members because, one, we barely see any. Uh, we see them for a total of once, at least for Lydia's family members, mm-hmm. uh, her brother. Um, but she makes a good – he makes a very good uh, comment about Lydia's, like, life and her distance from her family. Um, but, yeah, so it has to be Francesca in terms of who's leaving these kind of, like, scary threat threats to to Lydia, but, yeah. So uh, that's that's who I assume that is doing that. That's just one thing about the brother as as they're in uh as she's in her child at home, he's still at the bottom of the stairs. He's looking up at her. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a re- good observation. Regardless of whether or not she's fallen from grace, she's still above him. She still has that talent. She still's got that notoriety. Oh, wow. Even if you're infamous, you're still famous. Yeah, because yeah, he says you don't know where you're going nor where you've been. Or he says, oh, you don't know where you're from nor where you're going. Yeah. 
yeah, you have no idea where you're from or where you're going. And I thought that was like, yeah, she has, yeah, she doesn't know. Yeah. Because at that point, she, she lost everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's already been ousted, um, as a predator <laughs> and a man- manipulator. And on top of that, she decided to make her situation even worse, which I frankly think over time people would have forgotten about what she did and she would have been accepted back into the into the you know whatever the berlin thing um or even accepted somewhere else i think i frankly think she would have been fine but she did a big no-no and she so she was she was planning on doing the fifth symphony of Mahler. The, the full cycle is what is what it's called, which her mentor Leonard Bernstein did, and so it's her own adaptation of the Mahler Five. They're trying to record all nine of Gustav Mahler's symphonies. Yeah, and so mm-hmm. this is the last one, and it's a pretty big deal for her and her career, her artistic legacy, and so there's the, there's the stakes, you know, kind of set. Like this is a pretty big achievement for her uh, musical career. Um, so you know all that news comes out, so she's not gonna be able to do it anymore. So Elliot takes her place as the conductor, and she runs on stage and assaults him. Yep, in front of the public. Ooh, yeah. And it's so funny because she says my favorite line in the whole film in the Juilliard scene. You must stand before the public and God and completely obliterate yourself. And that is exactly what she did. Ironically enough, she completely obliterated herself and her career. Yeah, there's so much foreshadowing. She also talks to um, Andres, her mentor. And as they're joking about different, you know, composers, they mention one who did the exact same thing that she did at the end of the movie. Um, They go, oh, yeah, you know, that guy who... Oh, yeah, push someone off the podium. Oh, yeah, how funny. <laughs> and then she goes and takes that. I didn't even notice that. Yeah, yeah, they they talked about that in, in one scene. <laughs> yeah, so she, yeah, it was like, man, I, I, I joked that those people uh, got their money's worth. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not only do you get to hear Gustav Mahler's Fifth Symphony, you get to see a fight. You know what's also funny, too? Um... Another little tidbit with um, this, like, democracy is a word that kind of gets thrown around by her. So in towards the beginning of the film, um, kind of like a transitional sequence where uh, you see Francesca, I think, or somebody um, editing Lydia's Wikipedia page. And in the background, you hear Alec Baldwin kind of talking to Lydia. And... Alec Baldwin? Yeah, it's Alec Baldwin that does the voiceover for that. Really? Yeah. And um, he mentions that during COVID, they, the Berlin Orchestra um, made the decision to make all the streaming and whatever, the, the performances free and, you know, for people to watch for free live on public, uh, like probably on YouTube or whatever. And, and he, he, asks her if that was her decision and then she says no that was a that was a democratically chosen um 
idea, you know, by all the all the members of the orchestra. Um, even though I would like to claim it as mine, it 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 cannot be. And then later in the film, when she's talking to Petra, um, Petra's like giving pencils, like I guess the conductor pencils, to her stuffed animals. Yeah. And then Lydia makes this comment about, oh, but they all can't be conductors. It's not a democracy. <laughs> just laugh. Because <laughs> I'm like, well, dude, you, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You know? I hate that saying so much. <laughs> it's true. I hate that saying. <laughs> I'm not going to get into how much I don't like that statement. Like, how much it doesn't make sense. Okay. Like, all right. Okay. All right. But That's mo- fair. But, That's moving, fair. but moving past yeah, it, moving it's, on, it's, moving like, it's like. No, I, I, I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. But. You know, she falls, and I'll be honest, I was really, really concerned about the ending. I was very concerned. I was fully expecting, because what we see is after she's fallen, she's presumably faced some sort of fine or um, community service. Probably suspension. I don't think that, that she would be met with imprisonment. No, no, no! Like suspension from the oh, from, from the from participating in uh, performances for by yeah. a allotted period of time. I assume that's what happened. So, but she moves away to the Philippines. I, at least that's what I where I think it was. Yeah, yeah it's yeah, in the Philippines. It is. But, yeah. Okay, but um, she immediately goes back to, you know, conducting and leading an orchestra. She has not done any, you know. Self-improvement, she has not, uh, you know, identified her flaws at all. She's not looked at who she is as a person and said, you know what? I see I see what brought me down. I see, I see how I've failed. Here's how I can, you know, mend this. Oh, here's how I can apologize. Here's how I can improve as a person. No, she gets back up and there, she's ready to conduct a big old orchestra. And I am totally ready to hear Mahler's Symphony Number no. 5. And Tristan... <laughs> Why don't you tell me what I saw instead? <laughs> okay, so, um, but I think there's a I before I think before we get to that, I okay. think there's there's important things. That's a good to point. Mention. So, you know, um, when we watched the film, the grooming thing went way over my head the first time I watched it. I understand <laughs> it. And I'm over here whispering. So there's this scene. I'll explain it. She is in the Philippines and she wants to go get a massage. So she asks people around um, and, you know, she goes to a massage place and the lady who works at the massage place goes, okay, approach the fish bowl, which I mind you is bowl. The bowl is also what they call the orchestra. She approaches an seemingly full orchestra of women. They're sitting in a, a circle. Yeah. Yeah. They're sitting in the shape of it. Um, and she is, is asked to pick one of these young women to, you know, give her a massage. And she has a full meltdown. She gets physically sick and I think is kind of met with the realization of, how disgusting uh, her actions were, but yeah, the whole time as this is happening, I'm like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, 
like, oh, wow, you know, this is, she's finally coming to terms with, and Tristan's like, what? (laughs) (laughs) See, I don't think so. I, I didn't get that at all. Really? Really? I mean, I don't know why she has that violent sickness, but I don't think that she's improved. No, no, no. We're not saying she improved. No, I mean, but I don't I don't think she's sick at the sight of, you know, picking something. I'm sure it's like, you know, oh, a, a supplement. Have this. This will this will relax you. And then, you know, it doesn't. No, no. Mackenzie was alluding to the fact that she was sick with herself of like her own yeah. actions. Yeah. I don't I, I don't know if I agree with that. Really? I don't I know if I agree that. with that, but I also. I, I also don't have a better explanation. So because when you think about it, I'll roll with that. When you think about it, this whole this whole scenario is purely like, I mean, it's like prostitution essentially. Uh, yeah, you're like picking who you want. Yeah. Uh, f- and coincidentally enough, I mean, this is not coincidence. This was obviously done on purpose. But like the person that looks up at her is in the same position where Olga is in the Berlin. Mm-hmm. Uh, orchestra. So there's that little uh, detail there by Todd. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> yeah. And so she, I, I, I think she, she, yeah, she recognizes like, oh my goodness, I'm a terrible person. But I think it's like the first step of her. I, I, I genuinely think that it's like the first step to her, you know, realizing, okay, I, I have to atone for my sins, kind of thing. I don't know. I th- I think I think that's I think that's the case. I feel like because it's not like she went back to Berlin immediately no. after. She's still in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's true. But, she's still very professional while there. Right. She doesn't. She doesn't take. She doesn't take anything for granted. She knows her position. She knows what she did. She recognizes that she made a, a terrible mistake and she, she's a bad person. She needs to like fix herself change and you know she's i mean the only thing that that really concerns me about that the, the only thing that leads me not to buy into that is that at the moment where she throws up there are five minutes left in the film and I don't believe I see any – she goes back to being a professional, certainly. She goes back to um, you know, doing what she always did, which is conduct and talk about the music with the students and go through her pieces and check, check, check her, herself twice. I don't see anything that says that she's really addressed what – she's done she i i don't see i don't see that character development i don't see that progression i don't see not it's not that i don't see the progress but it's that i don't see how she gets there and i think that's what sticks out to me is that she may she might be better i mean she's not immediately better no god no no it takes time for her to to be reconciled for what she did 
Totally. I mean, she might never be forgiven for what she did by Krista's parents or by her wife or ex-wife or Elliot. (laughs) Yeah. You know, that may never happen, but at some point later in her life, she might, she'll probably, you know, ask for forgiveness by those people. And I think, I think that's what the, that moment of her being sick with herself is that first step of realizing, okay, I'm, I'm bad. You gotta, okay. you, you gotta recognize that. Yeah, I'm a terrible person. Because if you never rec- recognize that you've done bad or you've done wrong against others, then okay. you're never gonna be able to, um, change and become mm. a better person. I get that. So, so yeah. it's it's not as important to show how she gets better, but more important to show that she's had this reaction to realize that she's done something wrong. Yeah, because I think, I mean, at least I do, I think everybody can change and be a good person. Yeah. You know, I genuinely think there's good in everybody. Um, But, like, you know, her actions have consequences. That doesn't mean she should get off scot-free for what she did. She exactly. should certainly be reprimanded um, for what she did. And <laughs> it's the great yeah. So, but but she's she's oh, been so good. she's been able to recover. She's back in front of an orchestra, ready to conduct. Yeah. yeah. And okay, so <laughs> this is the funniest. This is one of the f- most absurd. Well, it's not absurd, but it's like, well, yeah, it's kind of absurd. Not the style, but the, the content. The content and like such a left. It's out of nowhere. <laughs> like, it's such a left field like decision, but it's genius. I think it's a genius decision to end the film like this. Yeah. So she's in the Philippines, desperate for work, you know, because she's an artist and creative. Um, and oh man, I also I want to mention this before we get to the to the end. <laughs> okay. So throughout the film, Lydia is all constantly being bothered by these small little sounds that she hears. You know, it's the the little like beeping noises or the the like the doorbell, the woman screaming upstairs. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever it is, like just little tiny things that bother her. Because we constantly see her kind of like try to make music in her her apartment, in her own apartment. But she struggles to actually make anything or write anything. But then after all that that went down, she's in the Philippines and she's like working on her music in like a bustling street side like market. Mm. But there's a lot of noise going on, but she's extremely focused. I thought that was a little interesting because I think she's like kind of getting back to her roots. She's like, okay, I need, I I've been humbled. I need to humble myself kind of thing like given my situation that I'm in. But anyways, I just want to mention that. <laughs> but anyways, so she's getting ready to conduct this orchestra who is pretty much like full of high school students. Yeah, that's what it looked like to me as yeah, well. Yeah, it's like a high school orchestra. Um and so she gets on the podium, um, and uh, some dude hands her a monitor with headphones, and these three projector screens come down. And when I'm seeing this, I'm like, oh, it's okay, that's weird. Why is it three? And then, uh, so it's probably just a film. She's probably doing a film orchestra thing. That that that's pretty normal. 
And then, um, (laughs) (laughs) and then it starts playing like this kind of like fantasy music or whatever. Like, there's this very grand epic narration, and then it cuts to a pan, like a dolly shot of cosplayers (laughs) of a video game (laughs) called Monster Hunter. Now, if there are fans of that game. Yeah, I mean, no, it, you know, do what you want to do, but it's just so funny that that shot, that reveal is hilarious. I was dying in the theater because yeah. it <laughs> it's oh, so ridiculous. He, yeah. What, what are you saying? No, I was just gonna say it's 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 the perfect ending. It's you don't expect it, and it just goes to show. Well, I guess it really does end you with the question. Okay. Can she get back up to where she was? You know, is this it for her? Is this what she's destined to? Or is she on her path to, you know, conducting Mahler again? I'm sure she'll get back. I'm, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. That she'll be back in some capacity. Yeah. Because, mostly because she's talented. Yeah, her talent will carry skilled. her. Yeah. Um, but this this experience will humble humble her and make her realize that her positions of privilege that she's been uh, used to for so long that are now gone. All of that is gone because she ultimately ultimately she is the catalyst of her fall of her failure. Um, yeah. And, yeah, and so the. I think what the narrator says is important because, you know, as as Mackenzie, you mentioned that uh, she's very elitist in terms of her, like, mm-hmm. you know, music and whatever. Um, he says, once you board this ship, there's no turning back. The next ground your feet touch will be that of the new world. Um what else does he say? If any of you have lost your nerve, then step away now and let no one judge you. And I think that's, I think one, I think that one that's breaking the fourth wall, because the people that are gonna watch this film, like myself, this is ex- I th- that that exact line is pointed at a person exactly like me, who I try my best not to be elitist when it comes to my taste and films and music. But when push comes to shove and somebody <laughs> is trying to, like, you know, is is showing me, I don't know, like Marvel movies, for example. I'm not a big fan of the MCU. I don't like the MCU that much. I mean, I like Iron Man. Iron Man's cool. I like Iron Man. The first one. Um, it's fun to watch. I mean, they're fun to watch. They're entertaining. But in terms of, like, art pieces, they're not, it's not good art, in my opinion. And, you know, and that's fine. That's my opinion. And then there's other people that love that stuff. And that's totally great. I love that they love that. But, it, you know, when I'm confronted with this, the the situation of, like, oh, you know, you have people that are very passionate about this. They're huge fans of this. And I'm just sitting here and I'm like, I want, like, I want to participate in that happiness. But I know that ultimately, like, in in my mind and in my heart that I'm like I just this this is not my thing, but at the other hand on the other hand I'm like 
I kind of want to roast them for it, but I know that I shouldn't because it's not right. It's not the right thing to do because it it's just going to make it's just going to ruin their day. It's going to make them feel bad for what they like, you know. And and the same thing happens with my friends specifically. Um you know, some of them roast me for my taste. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, what are you talking about? You don't know good art when it slaps you in the face. I say that to one of my friends, Phineas. Uh, he's probably not listening to this, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. Uh, he he always he always jokes to me, tries to tease me about Parasite. He says, that's the worst movie ever made. Well, he, he just says that to, like, egg me <laughs> on. But I'm like, Phineas, you don't know good art when it slaps you in the face. You know, I tell him that straight up. And, I mean, he's my friend, and he doesn't care. But, like, if I were to say that to somebody who I'm not friends with, who I'm not that close with, you know, and they're telling me about the MCU, and I'm like, uh, you know, I say that to them, that's going to hurt their feelings. And it, I, I just I just laughed so hard initially when that initial shot happened. And I didn't catch the first time I watched it. I didn't catch that last line. I heard "judge you," but I didn't get the whole context of the of the phrase or the sentence. Mm. It was only till the second watch where I fully, you know, understood because I was howling. I was howling. Mm. Um, the, yeah, the second time I was like, "Oh, uh, I should, probably should not be laughing because, well, one, you have Lydia who." was literally at the top of the world in terms of classical music and now look at what she's doing so you can laugh i think it's it's funny to laugh at her at her expense i think that's funny that's certainly funny it's certainly not what you're expecting true yeah that's yeah well most but definitely it's not not okay to laugh at people for their taste yes more to laugh at the fact that she was performing in Berlin for the most sophisticated of audiences. Yeah, and, and now she's in the Philippines performing for cosplayers of a video game. Yeah. And like again, it poses the question for like myself or people that are watching this film that know about this film. They're like, okay, yeah, you got good taste, but uh, you know, uh, that doesn't mean your taste is far superior than others that may not enjoy this kinds of stuff. And it's 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 an interesting thing that Todd poses because ultimately, and I, yes, art is all subjective. Art is subjective. As as hard as that is to kind of admit, um, when it comes to discussions of art, you know, as much as I would love to say that, oh yeah, art is objective, and it really isn't. It really isn't. I mean, you there's there's universal acclaim for certain things. Like you could, everybody will agree. Oh, the statue of David is one of the most beautiful sculptures ever created in the history of mankind. Everyone, mostly everyone in their right mind, will say that. You know, but like with a film like this, well, one, not many people are going to watch it, and the only types of people that will watch it are people that are into filmmaking. Yeah, and are you know, into art house stuff and are into like different kinds of things, more eclectic tastes. And I just, I just think it's such a, a good, a good like reminder of to, you know, respect uh, other people's tastes. And, you know, you kind of don't see that. Well, Lydia, I mean, she's surrounded by everybody that's just like her. 
in terms of like taste in in music because i'm also because when we watched it the first time i was thinking about anthony fantano and how you know the internet music culture that whole culture on the on the internet uh with like music fans how there's just this like oh yeah we're we're we have superior taste and whatever and like you know fantano kind of is this leader of this well, he's not the leader, but a lot of people point to him as this, this kind of beacon of truth, so to speak, of, uh, you know, music taste. You know, I don't have I got to wait till Fantano's review drops so I can have my opinion formed, you know, rather than, oh, let me form my own opinion about this thing. Um, but that's more of a meme. But regardless, I mean, I, I'm talking way too much about this on one very small specific point. I just, I just thought it was worth, you know, worth talking about, anyways. But if you'd like to brag, <laughs> if you'd like to brag about your film taste, or, or maybe, maybe insult Tristan for his, go to our Instagram account, Odyssey.of.cinema, <laughs> and light him up in the comments. Come on, Marvel people, I know you're out there. <laughs> yeah, Judah, Judah, don't, don't ever slander my boy Kubrick, bro. <laughs> Because you don't know what you're saying, okay? Once again, that is odyssey.of.cinema on Instagram. But I do want to make sure I say this um, before we end. I I didn't know what to expect. But coming in and feeling the slow burn, I I felt great similarity similarity with, with this piece, Tar, and last year's oscar baby that did not come through the power of the dog in that both of them are slow burns with small casts working with tough themes like sexuality or power or family that kind of thing and you're dealing with both except tar actually engaged me tar made me want to keep watching there were more parts of tar that were good besides the ending and I did not feel that way with the power of the dog. I felt like the power of the dog was a bunch of a bunch of nothing and then a really good ending. But you had to sit through an hour and 45 minutes to get there anyway. So what's the point? <laughs> so what's the point? But what I guess what this means is I think the tar is wonderfully written, wonderfully crafted. And I think we will be talking about this again in March. Oh, for Oscar season? Indeed. Oh, yeah. Uh, you, McKenzie, you, you have any uh, last thoughts? Because I know you said you had a lot to say. And, well. Yeah. Um, we kind of dominated the conversation. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's my bad. No, that's okay. I, I mean, everything you guys said is, is, um, very important to note. Um, it's just it's an incredible film i what i went into it with pretty much no expectations and and came out of it floored about how real it is how how relevant it is um Mm -hmm. and how much it makes you think and how how it really opens um, the conversation up in such a new way and uh, with cancel culture. Um, it's it's amazing. 
and I definitely will. I never rewatch movies. That's something about me. I don't really like rewatching movies too much. It has to be really good for me to want to rewatch it, and I will be rewatching this for sure. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. I've seen well tonight. Well, before we're recording this, this is the third time I've seen it within the within the span of less than a month. Um, so I've loved it. I've loved it even more with each subsequent viewing. I so my first viewing obviously was marred by the fact that I completely <laughs> missed the like the major theme and major plot point of the entire the the point of the film. Like I missed that because I was dumb. <laughs> I can't I'm glad you were there to, to explain <laughs> that to me because after you did, I was like, oh, no, <laughs> no, but there is so much of it that is easy to miss. Um, again, I, I think it requires a second watch to truly understand it. Yeah, I saw it like three hours ago and there are things that I missed. I, I there are things I don't remember. You have to revisit. Yeah, and yeah. Um, also, too, you know, my uh, <laughs> I love the uh, mat, like the cut from the very first sequence when they're actually rehearsing for the thing, and she goes and does like she moves her arms backwards and like opens up her chest essentially like up to the to the heavens, mm. like. It's very graceful. I don't know. I just like the conducting kind of movement, like with the arms and like the whole body. I just it's just such a graceful like kind of choreography to it. It looked graceful in studio. Yeah. Um, Deleted scenes would be available. <laughs> <laughs> and okay, look. I know we talked about the themes, and we should be wrapping up here soon. But I just want to mention that. You know the performances, specifically from Kate Blanchett. This is a tour de force performance. This is a performance of the decade. This is a career-defining performance mm. uh, from an actress who is well beloved and she's is. She's already got two Oscars. Yeah, I mean, yeah, she's already critically acclaimed for her work. But I, I mean, she is. Wow, a master. And she's on, she's pretty much shown throughout the entire film, the entire runtime. You never see her off screen. I don't think there's one single shot without her in the, in the, in the frame. Or at least involved in the scene. Yeah. She dominates this film. Because yeah. it's about her. Oh, I mean, yeah, it's a, she, it it's has a character study. It's so, yeah. Her. yeah, it's her. Yeah. It's, I almost, it's crazy. It's almost like, this movie makes you believe that, like, if you meet her, that is her. You know what I mean? Like, I fully expect to, if I see Kate Blanchett, she is Lydia. Lydia is her. She she becomes her so seamlessly. It's it's crazy. Yeah, when we watched it the second time, I was like, mm-hmm. I wonder if she met, I wonder if she was, like, doing method acting. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of like, no, probably not. I don't know. Um, she made a point in that New York Times or, or, or yeah, the New York Times article to say 
I don't want to talk about getting into character. I don't want to talk about how I become this person. Don't don't ask me about that. So, oh. yeah, I, I, I really can't. Ah, interesting. OK, huh? Uh, I am not interested in any way. Oh, this role, the role meant this to me. I channeled my own inner. No, she looked briefly nauseated. None of that stuff. Huh. Kate Blanchett mm-hmm. doesn't watch her own work and doesn't dislikes talking about whether a role incorporates any part of herself. And she is, she insists, the least entertaining subject, at least to herself. Wow, really? Wow, that's very interesting. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> wow, okay. You go, Kate. Wow, okay. That's, I respect that. But that's also kind of weird? I don't know. I mean, uh, I don't, actually, that's probably not that weird. No, that's not that weird. But it's it's certainly. I mean, I, I don't know. I guess I find that unusual when when someone is like asked about their work, they're not they refuse to talk about it. I mean, it's the exact opposite of Lydia. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to talk about myself. I I would rather I would rather talk about as true <laughs> literally anything else. <laughs> But I mean, from an artistic standpoint, from like analyzing it in that regard, like how are you how are you going to know, you know, for actor like aspiring actors and actresses, like if they want to analyze her performance, so how will they know what she did? You know, they're never going to know that information. Um, I mean, they can analyze her actual performance, but in terms of how she mentally the stages of where she had to be to be able to do what she did on screen. But, I mean, either way, her performance is one for the ages. And I think it also, too, uh, Todd didn't want... He only wanted Kate to play that role. The film was never going to be made if she was not playing that role. He said that um, in an interview somewhere um, about wow. the film. So... Perfect for it. it, thank, it God, uh, yeah. thank God she... Her, her agent... Or whoever reached out to her agent or whatever, and she read the script and liked it. Thank God that that happened. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for real. <laughs> I yeah. And just to end it, one more prop to Kate Blanchett. Uh, she mostly prepared for this on nights and weekends, shooting other projects during the day. She learned to play the piano, speak German, and do stunt driving. Became versed in history of orchestral music and the personal styles and biographies of the famous conductors, and she also learned how to conduct an orchestra. She showed up on... uh, The quote from Todd Field is, she showed up on set, and she had memorized the entire script as if it were a play. Wow. That's incredible. I also uh, asked that question, if the conducting was accurate. If If it was... And it is. Wow. She... She's something. Dang, that's that's like yeah, that's like method acting kind of levels of dedication. Because I don't know when production started for this. I have no idea when production started for this. Uh, I think at least 2020 at the earliest. But or when she even got like the script, I don't even know when the script was finished or whatever. When she was handed the script, like because that come on, that doesn't. No, you don't do that in the span of like a year or two. All of that, there's no way. 
Yeah, because her German is extremely, extremely good. Is extremely good. I mean, you understood some of it, because uh, some of it's not subtitled in the, the yeah. or- orchestra scenes. Yeah, it, it some of it is some of it is basic German. Some of it I don't know because I don't know German that well. Yeah. But like, there is a lot of, you know, basic German. You know, no something about writing. So you know, I could tell. Oh, she's she's putting her own spin on the piece. It, it's impressive the work that she was able to do to get, you know, pronunciation to be effortless mm. in how she was able to carry out this role. Yeah. And then also uh, credit to, well, the entire crew, yeah. um, everybody involved in getting this created. And Todd Field especially being the brainchild of it, because uh, he wrote this from his own mind. It's an original screenplay, and he directed it and uh, produced it as well. Um, I genuinely think the more I watch this, the more I think that this film will be remembered within film circles, obviously, um, as a probably the best one of the best films of the decade. I genuinely think that. And also not only that, but of the century, because this film is. I will say timeless, I, I, I must say it will be a timeless film of the story, the classic story of a fall from grace, but like the snapshot of it, um, I think will always be relevant because, you know, when is it, when is, you know, somebody who's at the top of their game and is also pretty bad, like a bad person, like never, not a, a relevant topic to discuss or when is that never happening? You know, you know what I mean? Um, and I, uh, it's a masterpiece and he doesn't throw that word around around lightly folks no i do not i do not <laughs> even though <laughs> you disagree slightly slightly just kidding. <laughs> look okay look i've only well <laughs> with with all with all yeah, that yeah, aside, it is stop. We need it, to end. It is a it is a <laughs> one day film. Two hours. We we do recommend it strongly, as evidenced by the amount of time we can spend talking about it. Yeah. So, Tar, Todd tar. Field. It may not be in theaters near you, but it's on it's on YouTube. As we get closer to Oscar season, certainly by next week, when I think the Golden Globe nominations come out. We'll be able to see a little bit more. It'll maybe make its way onto streaming platforms in January, February, yeah. and you'll be able to watch it for slightly cheaper. But yeah. you know, if you if you just want to purchase the movie and have it forever, and then you can just watch it over and over again and again and like again, like what I did, that may or may not be the best way to do that. <laughs> Yo, Criterion Collection, please, please release this, please. I need those special features, dude. I need them. I need those interviews. I need that essay, bro. Come on. Come on. Todd Field. Come on. Get 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 together with the Criterion boys. Uh <laughs> over there in New York. <laughs> get this release, please. <laughs> Blu-ray. Um yeah. Um that's Tar, Todd Field, Kate Blanchett, Masterpiece, Ma- uh, just phenomenal film. Please watch it. Please do yourself a favor and watch this. You will not regret it. I assure you. Uh, thank you for tuning in. This has been the Cinematic Odyssey. Um, 
next week. I don't even know what we're going to do next week. We'll figure it out. We'll keep you on your yeah, toes. Yeah, we'll figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I know at some point in the next couple of weeks, we're going to do like a special type of episode. Like not, we're not gonna specifically talk about one single film, right? Exactly. We're gonna, we're gonna do like a year recap kind of thing. Exactly. More of what what have Tristan and I seen this year, in the year 2022? What have we seen for the first time? What are our favorites? What are the things that we've loved that have come out this year, or at least have been a part of our uh, cinematic odyssey? I did it twice <laughs> of of the year 2022. Mm. So. We we hope you'll enjoy that. That'll probably be the last episode of 2022. Yeah. But Which, yeah. next week, who knows? But <laughs> this is the Cinematic Odyssey. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, this is uh, U92 The Moose production here uh, at WVU. Um, this is a bad ending. Anyways, <laughs> see you guys next week. <laughs> Later. Auf Wiedersehen.